Indeed, now we do look to Christ as we open his word together. And so I'd ask if you would bow with me in a word of prayer as we approach God's holy and inspired word. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word, that you have revealed yourself in its pages and that it has been faithfully transmitted down through the centuries and now is in our language, is in our hands and in our laps. We thank you that you have preserved your word so that we might know it in our day. And we ask that you might speak to us through your word this morning, that we might live most faithfully for you in the times that you've called us to live. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, last week we had the privilege of hearing from one of our missionaries, uh, Shannon Hurley, as he ministers in Uganda. And if you were here with us, you'll remember that he spoke from Matthew chapter 10 on the inevitability of persecution for the believer. He helped us to come to grips with the reality that persecution is actually normal and to be expected for Christians. And yet, as he noted, that here in the United States, we've been living in a time in which we have not felt persecution for many generations. We live in the land of the free, and we pray that it continues to be so. But increasingly, our culture has become hostile to God's truth and to those who hold to it. And while we may be disappointed with this, we should not be surprised. For indeed, as we learned last week, Christ has warned us with the words in Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all for my sake. The church through the ages has faced opposition, persecution, and suffering, all for the name of Jesus. Those of you who are taking the church history course no doubt have heard some of these stories. We read in church history of people like the three women, Perpetua, Felicity, and Blandina, who were all killed by wild animals in the year 203 AD in the Colosseum. Or we read of the Waldensians, a group from the 12th century, who sought to live by the true doctrine of the Bible and reject the false doctrine of Roman Catholicism. And as a result, they were hunted, tortured, and killed by the Catholic governments of the time. Or we read of John Frith, who during the time of the Reformation was burned at the stake in 1533 for helping William Tyndale translate the Bible into English. But of course, we don't have to look to the past to even be reminded that the church is persecuted. We can look to the present day, right? We've all seen or maybe heard of the stories just a few years ago of ISIS beheading Christian men and raping and enslaving Christian women all throughout the Middle East. You've heard of the brutal torture of Christians in North Korea or now Afghanistan. Now, although we have not seen persecution at that length in our own country, we begin, we're beginning to feel the pinch, right? Christians are losing jobs, businesses, and opportunities because of their faith. People like Baron L. Stutzman, a formal, former florist in Washington State, who was forced to shut down because of her biblical view of marriage. Similarly, Jack Phillips of Colorado, who has already been at the Supreme Court because of his views of Christian marriage, but now the authorities are trying to shut him down again because he refuses to bake a cake for a gender transition. These are just the tip of the iceberg. We know that more is coming. But these stories, these accounts from church history and present day remind us that the words of Jesus have held true. He says in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation. We know that the persecution and opposition that believers receive is not right. It's not justified. We aren't hurting People, we are not doing what is wrong. We are simply doing what God has called us to do to uphold his word and live according to it. And while we, like the disciples that we read in Acts 5 this morning, we can rejoice to suffer for the name of Jesus, we also can grow weary of the opposition. And maybe that's where you stand here even this morning, lacking a bit of, of hope for the future, feeling where, how can I stand in the midst of this opposition? What about my children? What about my grandchildren? Lord, this opposition, how can we stand? And as we grow weary, we can long for Jesus to come back and make everything right. 
We long for him to come and to bring justice to this planet. And so in our passage today, Jesus is going to help us, he's going to encourage us to do just that, to pray that Jesus would return to vindicate his saints. And so I'd invite you to open your personal copy of God's word, if you're not there already, to the book of Luke chapter 18. The book of Luke chapter 18. Today will be the third and final installment of this little series we're calling Awaiting the Kingdom's Revival, or sorry, Arrival. Awaiting the Kingdom's Arrival. We first looked in verses 20 to 25 about setting our, our eyes upon Christ. That we are to look to him and to him alone and that in him is the kingdom. And so he offered it to Israel when he was there present, but then he ascended and, and now we await for him to return and bring it back. And he will return and it'll be a glorious, and, a glorious day that will be seen like lightning across the sky. But then we saw in verses 26 to 37 that we are to set our hope on Christ. We wait by setting our hope on Christ that we realize that in this day and in this time as we live in a pagan society, a, a world that rejects Christ just like in Noah's day and just like in Lot's day, we need to look to the Lord and to his return when he will return to save us and redeem us the same day that it will bring judgment upon this earth. And finally this morning we're going to look in chapter 18 verses 1 through 8 here that we are awaiting the kingdom's arrival by persevering in prayer. By persevering in prayer. Now, this passage is common to uh, be addressed outside of its context. If you go to a book on prayer, no doubt you'll hear an exposition or a chapter on this chapter, on these verses in Luke 18. And it's generally pulled out as a generic teaching about prayer. And while there is much that we can learn about prayer in this text, this we need to specifically hone the application for us based upon the context that we find this passage in. But let's begin by reading our passage this morning. Follow along as I read Luke chapter 18 verses 1 through 8. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect? who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The passage here comes immediately following what we looked at at the end of chapter 17, in which the arrival of the kingdom, Jesus' second coming, is being addressed. This is what theologians called eschatology. It is, speaks about the study of the end or the study of the end times. And so Jesus is here instructing his disciples of what will take place in that future day and he's telling them how to live until that day, how they're to wait during this intervening time. Now we know that these first eight verses of chapter 18 continue the theme of what came in 17 for several reasons. The first is that verse 1 begins with an and. There's a conjunction. He's continuing what was just talked about. But we also see that the passage ends, verse 8, by talking about when the Son of Man comes. He's still on the topic of the coming of the Son of Man, i.e. his own return. And there's several terms used in this passage that are used elsewhere in the scriptures to speak of eschatological events, such as justice, which is used repeatedly in this passage. The word uh, translated speedily here in verse 8, or delay in verse 7. These words are used in other eschatological passages as well. And so, it's in light of that end times context that we need to look at this passage and see that this parable is not simply about how one should pray, 
but relates directly to prayer for the Lord to come and set things right. This is not just a generic passage on prayer, but a prayer targeted towards asking Jesus to come back and set things right upon this earth. In essence, then, this passage gives us an encouragement to pray a prayer that Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. That is one that you may be familiar with. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It encourages us to keep praying this and to not give up. And so therefore this morning we're going to see four reasons why we must persevere in prayer for the arrival of Christ's kingdom. Four reasons we need to persevere in prayer for the arrival of Christ's kingdom. We must persevere in prayer because number one, we can easily lose heart. We're going to see this first, that we can easily lose heart. And we see this in verses one through five. You look in verse one, he says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. The them there in verse 1 refers to the disciples. It harkens back to 17 verse 22 where it says, and he said to the disciples, he's speaking to his followers. He continues that here in 18.1. The parables, if you've been with us through our study of Luke, you know is a common form of teaching that Jesus, Jesus used. It often involved a story about something from everyday life there in first century life in Israel. But these stories have a point. They communicate truth for his audience. In this case, that we are given the purpose of the parable right up front. Before we even hear the parable, Jesus tells us, or Luke really, tells us why Jesus told this parable. It's as one Puritan said that the key to it is hanging right there on the door. We can see it right before we enter in. He tells the parable so that, what's the purpose? So that, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. The word translated ought could be translated it is necessary. And it communicates a moral imperative. Not that just that they should always pray, not just that they might always pray, but that they ought always to pray. It is necessary that the disciples always continue to pray and not lose heart. This is not a divine suggestion. This is a moral imperative. The Apostle Paul picks up on the, this necessity, you'll remember, in his letters. Exhortations such as pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5. Be constant in prayer, Romans chapter 12. Or continue steadfastly in prayer, prayer Colossians chapter 4. The same theme of continue on in prayer. In those exhortations in the Apostle Paul, as well as here in Luke 18, the point is not that we should become monks and we should devote ourselves to our days, hours uh, each day to prayer upon our knees and not do anything else. Rather, that prayer should be a marked characteristic of our lives. That as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to give ourselves to prayer. In fact, it should be, in one sense, the knee-jerk reaction of our lives. That as things happen in our lives, we pray about them. Something suddenly overtakes us, we pray about it. We continue to go to the Lord. We have an open channel to our Heavenly Father. And we are always bringing these things before Him. Because we know He loves us. Because we know He hears us. And so Jesus wants us to continue steadfastly in that habit of prayer. But in this context, the Lord specifically wants us to not give up praying for justice to come in the arrival of His Son. We're to pray for His kingdom to come. And for God to vindicate his suffering saints. And yet as we hear this instruction to pray, we all know that prayer is hard, isn't it? We all recognize the need for us to grow in our habit of prayer. At times we can become weary. We can lose heart. We can wonder if it's doing any good. We can wonder, does God even hear? The pain continues, Lord. The circumstances haven't changed. Do I continue to pray? Do I continue to offer up these prayers to God? We've prayed this for so long. Is it doing any good? And we can easily lose heart. And so I find it reassuring 
that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who tells us that we are to always pray, embedded in this command is also a recognition that prayer is not always easy. He understands this reality. In fact, he understands it so much that he wants to help us. That's why he gave us this parable, because he understands that prayer is hard and that we can lose heart. And so he wants to offer help for us in this difficult time between his ascension and and his return. We've already seen that he told his disciples in verse 22 that the days are coming when you're going to want to see the days of the Son of Man. You're going to want to see me again, but you're not going to be able to. He knew that when he was absent from this earth, there would be such a strong desire for them to see the Lord, to see him face to face, but there was going to be a season when they would not be able to do so. He also knew that the situation on earth during that time would not be one conducive to faith. In other words, it wasn't going to be this greenhouse of, of pleasantries and in which there's all this uh, a nice condition for faith to grow. You'll remember the illustrations he gives about what the world's going to be like when he returns. He tells about the days of Noah. How many righteous people were there in the days of Noah? There was Noah and his family. The rest were wicked. How about Lot? Lot, a... Uh, uh, complex figure to be sure but identified as a righteous man in the scriptures he and his family alone was saved in in light of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain Jesus knew that humanity in its rebellion against the Lord would not make it easy for his followers who would remain upon this earth because he knew that they first hated him and therefore they would hate his followers And so Jesus understands, friends, the difficulty of living in this age and he he wanted to prepare us for it. And so it's because of that compassionate understanding of our Savior that Jesus gave this parable so that you and I would not lose heart and are praying for his return. He doesn't want you to lose heart. He doesn't want you to lose the hope of his return. He wants you to step into each day with the hope and with the prayer that he would come back. And so he's given us this teaching to help us. Let's look at this teaching, this parable, and see what it offers for us. Let's look first, verses two and three, we're introduced to the characters of this parable. He says in verse two, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. First, we're introduced to a judge who's an immoral man. It's made very clear that he neither feared God nor respected people and therefore this man had no basis for his morality. People could not appeal to God's law, say, hey, you need to do this because God's word says. He goes, I don't care. And they couldn't appeal to him because of his his, his, his love or respect for the fellow men. Hey, don't you want to relieve the suffering of this person? He goes, I don't care about people. There's no standard by which he could, he would make his decisions. And most likely, he cared only for himself and made his decisions based upon uh, the bribes that would come his way that he would most benefit from. Because you see, if he said no, he was probably a powerful man because if he said no, he had the power to be able to, to ride over the consequences. If people didn't like him or if people uh, spurned him or, or, or whatever, he, it, didn't, it didn't affect him. This judge then, based upon this Uh, description here in verse 2 is the direct antithesis of what God desired for the judges in Israel. The Old Testament was clear that judges were to administer justice to people out of the fear of God. For example, listen to what Jehoshaphat, one of the kings of Israel, said to the judges that he appointed during his reign. He says this, he says, consider what you do for you judge not for man but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. This is God's standard. This is the way judges should be uh, administering justice in Israel. But here Jesus sets the, the story by saying that there is a man who is in direct opposition to God's standard. He's nowhere close to what God desired. And so from this, we should respect, we should expect just from this description that whatever decisions he's ma- he makes are not going to accord with God's word. They're not going to be right or just. Verse 3, we're introduced to the second character though. Look at it. It's the widow. 
And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now, a widow in ancient societies was one of the most vulnerable people in society. They're along with an orphan, which is why orphans and widows are often put together in the scriptures. Widows would have, women in that time received their protection, their property rights, and financial backing from their husband. And so when a woman would lose her husband, it was a devastating occurrence. Now we don't know much about the circumstances of this widow. We don't even know the trouble that she's in, what the adversary is doing against her. We just know that there is someone who is out to get her. Could be, uh, most likely it's probably a money issue. Some way she does not have the money to continue to pay something. There's someone that's demanding something from her that's out to get her. And so she's coming to the courts, coming to this judge. But in ancient Jewish courts, women often didn't represent themselves. It was often the men that would go to court representing women. But in this case, this woman had no male to go into the court on her behalf. She had no other options. Her only recourse was to go to this judge. And no doubt, she was probably stiff-armed initially, just even trying to get into the courtroom. She was probably not even given much of a voice that the men around her were probably trying to argue their case over hers. There's a good chance that she could have had to get more shrill in her, uh, her request just to be heard above the noise, just to be able to make her presence felt so that they would pay attention to her, even get some sort of decision. And even though this man was unrighteous and many people knew him to be unrighteous, she figured this is the only place she could go. And so she kept coming repeatedly over and over again, saying, give me justice vindicate me give me justice now look at verse 4 how does he respond to her it says for a while he refused she kept coming she raises her voice in a shrill give me justice and he says no boom get out of here she comes back the next day give me justice he says no and with a smirk on his face, he's like, I can get this lady out of my courtroom. I'm just going to say no. Does it, it's not doing anything to me. Get out of here. But after a while, who knows? Day 52, month 6. Who knows how long this is going on? And he's rolling his eyes as he sees her walk in the door. Going, oh, there she is again. And so notice what he then says to himself. Jesus in this parable lets us into the mind of this judge. It says verse 4, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continually, continual coming. He knows full well his moral character. Do you realize that? His assessment of himself is the same as what Jesus gives him. He knows that he's not a religious man or trying to follow God in any sort of way. He's not like the Pharisees. He knows he's an immoral man. And so his decision that he's about to make does not hinge on his care for the widow or his care for God at all. But notice what's changed his mind. It's because of the persistence of the widow. She's been so tenacious in her pleading with this judge that he is bothered and worried that he's going to eventually snap. He's going to have a nervous breakdown. He's going to be worn out by this single lady who keeps coming to his courtroom. It's a game of stamina and the widow has won because there was no sign this widow was going to stop. She was going to continue to come. And so the judge says, I will give her justice I will, or I will vindicate her. In order to protect his own skin, notice he's self-serving. He's not considering anyone else. He's only thinking about himself. He finally does what the widow asks. He wants her out of the way so he can continue on with his life, not be bothered. What's interesting is that the, the word translated here, so that she will not beat me down, actually is a word that means to give a black eye. There's some that think that this widow was getting so worked up that this judge was actually fearful this lady was going to climb up on the bench and deck him. I struggle to believe that that's, he's actually afraid of physical violence from this widow, but you, it can be used in a metaphorical way as we, as we often use it to say that we're being beat down and being worn down, and that's what he's worried of. 
So in the end, her persistence gained her justice. And that's the parable. Jesus is going to further explain what we are to draw out of this story. But in all this, we need to recognize, first of all, that Jesus understands that being a Christian in this age is difficult. That continuing to pray, continuing to have hope for justice and the end to be dealt is a wearying prospect. But in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the difficulty of this age, we must continue to press on. We must continue to pray and not lose heart. But let's look now at the second reason why we must persist in praying for the kingdom to come. And that is because God hears our persistent petitions. God hears our persistent petitions. And we'll see this here in verses 6 and the first part of 7. Verse 6, you'll notice it says, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? The first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus is drawing a comparison between the judge and God the Father. There's a comparison here and a contrast. The comparison is that they're both in a position to hear requests and to give justice. God and the judge are similar in that they both can hear requests and grant justice. But that's where the comparison ends. Because now there's the contrast. The contrast is where the judge has a cold heart towards people, God the Father has a warm heart towards his people. He does not stand coldly by requiring that people get really desperate. Oh, you're just going to ask once? Well, I'm going to wait until you get really desperate. Get on your knees and ask me. I want to see some tears before you ask me. That's not our father. He loves to listen to his people and to act on their behalf. And in particular, I want to draw your attention to a phrase in the middle of verse 7 where it says, where it describes his elect, those who cry to him day and night. His elect who cry to him day and night. Here in this parable, Jesus describes believers as his elect, God's elect. And this is such a sweet designation for us. We are reminded here, that we as believers in Jesus Christ are not saved because of our own ingenuity, our own reason, our own choice. We are saved because God elected us. God chose us for salvation. In fact, the Bible says that this election happened before creation. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, He, being God the Father, chose us in Him, being Christ, before the foundation of the world. This happened before Genesis 1-1. We were elected in Christ. And this is to give comfort to us believers. The bishop J.C. Ryle of the 1800s wrote the following. He said, election is a truth which should call forth praise and thanksgiving from all true Christians. Except God had chosen and called them, they would never have chosen and called on him. Except he had chosen them of his own good pleasure, without respect to any goodness of theirs, there would never have been anything in them to make them worthy of his choice. The believer, get this, who knows in his own heart will ever bless God for election. He will confess that without election, there would be no salvation. Friends, without God choosing us, we would not be able to choose him. And so we're reminded here that even though we wait until the coming day when the Son of Man will return and God will give justice to his children, that we are his elect, we are his chosen ones, and we can rest in that. But you'll notice here in that what, how does Jesus describe the elect? How does he describe the believers? They are those who cry to God day and night. In other words, the elect are a praying people. Those who are chosen of God are those who pray. When pain cripples their body, they cry to God. When mockery and ridicule come their way, they cry to God. When they bear reproach for Christ, they cry to God. 
when they suffer the pain of broken relationships, crushed spirits, and changed circumstances, they cry to God. Friends, a characteristic of God's children is that they cry to him day and night. Like the widow, we are to repeat our prayers continually. Here they are described, we, our prayers are described as, as, as crying out day and night. The point is that we don't stop. We don't just pray once and then leave it and go on. We continue to ask. True Christians keep their petitions going before the Father. Because friends, it's not a matter of God standing back and waiting until a certain number of petitions are met before he answers. But it is a matter of whether we really care enough. If we're just gonna like throw up one little prayer and move on and never return to it again, do we really care enough? The things that we really care about are the things that we're gonna continue to persist in. We're gonna continue to try and try again. This last few weeks, we faced a... Uh, a roadblock after roadblock of trying to get a certain medication for my son. Insurances and all the rest. We continue to press on and push on and press ahead, call and call again, spending hours on the phone because we care and because it's important. Friends, the things that we pray about, do we really care about them? Because if we do, we'd be repeating them over and over again to our Heavenly Father, asking that he would grant them. Now, this doesn't mean that we mindlessly repeat things because that would fall into the category of vain repetitions that Jesus uh, denounces in, in Matthew chapter 6, but rather like the passion of the widow, the widow who recognizes that I must ask of this judge because this is my only recourse, so we go to God because we recognize he's our only recourse. And if we don't get an answer initially, we keep at it. And why do we keep at it? We keep at it because God hears us. God hears our continued petitions. He does not close his ear to his elect. Rather, as we cry to him, he hears each one. And so believer, this morning, take comfort in the fact that your God hears your prayers. There's not one word that gets voiced in prayer that he refuses to hear or neglects to hear. He hears every cry of your heart, whether voiced or not. Don't believe the lie that God is too busy or that God's heart is closed to you. If you have trusted in his son, then he has opened his ear to you, his elect. And so, church, let us lift up our prayers often. Let us persevere in prayer for the arrival of Christ's kingdom that all may be made right in the end. So we need to persevere in prayer because number one, we can easily lose heart. And number two, God hears our persistent petitions. And thirdly, we continue in prayer because God will vindicate us soon. God will vindicate us soon. Verse 6, you'll note that after telling the parable, Luke inserts this fact that he says, and the Lord said. It's a little preface before the remainder of the explanation. And he identifies Jesus as the Lord. A reminder to us that the words Jesus is speaking to us in verse 6 through 8 are from our Lord and Master and we must listen. What particularly does the Lord say to us? First, in verse 6, he says to hear what the unrighteous judge says. Jesus wants us to reflect upon what that unrighteous judge has said. We are not to cruise over his words without first thinking about what he said. And what is it that we're to hear about what he said? We're to hear that the judge ultimately listened to the widow and acted on her behalf because of her persistence. We see that he, he turned, he bended, he changed because of her persistence. And so be, be based upon what that judge says, Jesus then says in verse 7, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, verse 8, he will give justice to them speedily. Here's the point Jesus makes. He says, you are not to give up in prayer because God will not give up on you. You are not to give up in prayer because God will not give up on you. We continue to cry out to the Lord because he will answer us with justice. He will avenge the injustices that we receive in this life. He will bring justice to this earth, punishing the wicked. 
Now, a lot of people talk about justice these days. This passage repeats the word justice several times. We hear the word justice all around us, particularly social justice. And I believe the reason it's such a part of our national conversation is because people recognize that there's something not right about this world. There's something that's not right about how humanity lives. They know something is broken. However, this world, and our nation in particular, needs to recognize that there is a higher justice than just a justice that's between man and man. There is a, a cosmic greater justice that is between God and man. Injustice between humans, that when humans do wrong against one another, it's merely a symptom of a greater injustice that we are doing to God. Because man has rebelled against God and commits sin and great atrocities against him, he will one day rightly, as the judge of the universe, judge all mankind who remain steadfast in their rebellion. He will do this by the hand of his son, Jesus Christ, who will return as judge and king with a sword in his hand. Jesus will come and judge according to his righteousness. When he returns, this age will end. And when he does, it will be a day of vengeance on all those who have refused to submit to Jesus as well as a day of salvation for the elect. And it's in that day that the cries for justice will be answered. Now this idea of Jesus bringing vengeance upon enemies is taught throughout the scriptures, but I just want to highlight one verse for you this morning and have you turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here the Apostle Paul picks up this theme and uses it actually as an encouragement. You go, how can judgment be an encouragement? Well, because in judgment of the wicked is the justice and vindication of the righteous as Jesus recognizes even in our passage. So 2 Thessalonians, I want you to start in verse 3. I know it says 7 and 8 on the screen. Let's just go to start in verse 3. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions you are enduring. So notice even just the context here and how it relates to our passage we're looking at. We're seeing that we're seeing believers who stand firm in faith in the midst of persecutions and suffering. All themes that we see in Luke 18. But look where Paul goes with this. This standing, the steadfastness of faith in their persecutions, verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and, look at the other half of that, to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. When will this happen? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Stop right there. Here you can see the very reality that is on the day of the revelation of Jesus Christ when he returns to this earth that he will inflict punishment on those who disobey the Lord and reject him and he will also provide relief. He will also uh, provide salvation to those who are afflicted, namely his elect who are being persecuted during this age. This is exactly what Jesus is saying in Luke 18. Let's flip back there. But that theme of Jesus bringing judgment and salvation in his return is found all throughout the scriptures. It was prophesied in the Old Testament and we see it here prophesied in the New Testament as well. But in light of these things, we might rightly ask, why is it that we need to pray for justice? I mean, when was the last time that you, just in your normal concerns upon your heart, as you, they were bubbling up uh, in your prayer life, that justice was on, the request for justice was on your lips? 
For some of us, it might be there. For others of us, we might never have prayed that God would give justice to us like the widow. But I think we need to remember the context of persecution, the context of opposition. Why would we cry day and night for God to give justice? Well, we would if we were recognized that we were being hunted and we were being tormented and tortured for our faith. He's speaking to disciples who live in a world similar to Noah and Lot, where unrighteousness abounds. They will be following a Savior who was rejected by the current generation and put on a cross. And so Jesus knew that all sorts of kinds of evil would be lobbied against his elect. He knew that they would have to endure all kinds of suffering while they, they followed him in his absence and on account of his name. And so he wanted to encourage them to cry out to God in the midst of that injustice and to wait for the justice that would come at his return. And so as believers in Christ, we recognize that justice will come when Jesus comes back. And therefore, we are not to seek revenge. Vengeance is not in our hands, is it? Paul quotes Deuteronomy when he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance and wrath and justice is in the Lord's hands. We don't seek to inflict that ourselves. We cry to God, though. When injustice is done to us, we cry out to him and seek justice from him. Now, we've really been looking at what here in the English Standard Version is the first question of verse 7, but if you're following along, you'll see that there's a second question of verse 7. And it says, will he delay long over them? Will he delay long over them? Now, some translations take it different ways. The question is whether it speaks of God's delay to save, whether he's delaying right now, or whether it's emphasizing that no, God doesn't delay. The English Standard Version and those that follow this that say, will he delay long over them, there's an implied answer of no because the next verse says he's gonna come speedily. That we'll look at that in a minute. But other translations such as the New King James Version says, shall not God avenge his own elect though he bear lo bears long with them? Shall he avenge him though he bears long, recognizing he does bear long with them? He is delaying long over them? And so it can communicate one of two things. Both translations are legitimate based upon the Greek. I think the New King James and those that follow that seem to fit with our vantage point and with our experience, right? It seems like God is taking a long time. That he's, he's waiting a while to vindicate us. He's waiting a while to come back. And while I am sympathetic to that, I don't think the Greek can be best translated in that sort of way to put a though there in the text because there's no other example of the Greek word chi being translated as though in a concessive way. Now the ESV doesn't even translate the word and that's there. If you have the New American Standard or the Legacy Standard Bible, it, it translates and between the two questions and makes it one long question. For example, the, the Legacy Standard says, now will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night and will he delay long over them? But the question of all of this in the way I believe is best rendered is to understand it as the English Standard or the New American Legacy have it that no, God will not delay long over them. What's the implied answer to the question? Will God delay long? No, he won't delay long. How do we know this? I think because of what he says in verse 8. The context helps us to determine what he's saying. And look at verse 8, the first sentence. He says, I tell you, emphatic there, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now speedily could also be translated soon. He will give justice soon. In fact, it's translated that way in the book of Revelation. If you do a word search for soon in the book of Revelation, you'll find it popping up several times. For example, the first verse of the book says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Same Greek construction as in our verse here this morning. Or at the end of the book, the last chapter of Revelation, Behold, I am coming soon, Jesus says, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Again, even in that verse, you hear the themes of our Luke 18, the idea that Jesus is coming back to bring justice. And he says he's coming soon, just like Jesus says here in Luke 18. 
Now, from our vantage point, friends, it doesn't feel like it's soon. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus was last here upon this earth. What do you mean he's coming soon? But this, we need to remember, friends, that God doesn't operate according to our timetable, does he? God's got his own clock. And God arrives right when he's on time. And he knows the day and the hour when he will return and this is exactly what Peter addresses in 2 Peter chapter 3. Because the, he, Peter says there's going to be mockers that arise and say, where is the promise of his coming? You guys talk about Jesus coming back, but where is he? This world has continued on. There's been, there's been no changes. He's not coming back. But Peter answers them by saying this in verses 3. Ten. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Jesus is coming back. He's going to come back soon. He's being patient right now. He's operating according to his own timetable. He is not slow about his promise. He is being patient. He is right on time and he indeed is coming soon. Every generation can believe these words that Jesus is coming soon. And so we must persevere in prayer, beloved. We must continue on in praying that Jesus would come quickly, that he would come vindicate us, that he would come make this earth right again. Let's look forth and finally at the fourth reason we should persevere in prayer from this text. And that is we should persevere in prayer because we must believe until the end. We must persevere in prayer. We must continue to pray because we have got to keep believing until that final day. And we see this in the last statement of, last question rather, of verse 18. He closes out this explanation with a question. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now there's a sense on even asking the question that faith will be scarce when Jesus comes back. He's going, am I even going to find faith? There's a sense in which he's not even sure. But by asking the question, he's exhorting his disciples to continue to believe and trust in the Father. There's, a, there's a, an, an undercurrent of exhortation that's in this question. Will he find faith? And the disciples are to say, yes, you're going to find it in us, Lord. We want to believe. We will continue to believe. Remember, the argument here is for us to pray and to not lose heart. In order to pray, we must believe. If you don't believe, if you don't trust in God and in what he's doing, you're not going to pray. Faith is required for prayer. If the widow, for example, stopped believing that the judge would grant anything in the end, she would have stopped her repeated petitions. But she believed and she pressed on. And so like the praying widow, we must trust and believe in our Father and continue to pray. Prayer and faith are inextricably linked. If we're going to continue in prayer, we must continue to believe. We must strengthen our faith. How is it that we're going to continue to pray? We must continue to strengthen our faith. Listen to what Augustine, the theologian from the early centuries of the church, says in this regard. He says, when faith fails prayer dies. In order to pray, then, we must have faith. And that our faith fail not, we must pray. Faith pours forth prayer, and the pouring forth of the heart in prayer gives steadfastness to faith. You see how they feed each other. Faith and prayer feed each other. We pray, and it strengthens our faith, and the more we strengthen our faith, the more we pray. They continue to build them up. So the question for us is when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in your heart? Will he find faith in our church? Will he find faith in our families? Do you believe this morning? Are you trusting and believing in Jesus Christ this morning? 
Do you believe that he indeed is the son of God, that he went to the cross for sinners, that he bore the wrath of God, that if you trust and believe in him, you can have your sins forgiven today? This is what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. It means to trust in him and in his sacrifice and in his resurrection in which he conquered death and now lives forevermore. He is the Lord and he is returning. The question is, when he returns, will he find faith in your heart? Will he find faith in our church? Faith to believe his promises. Faith to believe in his love for us. Faith to believe in the certainty of his return. Church, we must build ourselves up in the most holy faith. We must continue to exhort one another to strengthen our faith in these difficult days that we would continue to pray and ask God to come, ask Jesus to return and come quickly that we might press on and believe until the end. May we not throw in the towel early. May we not give up. May we continue to press on and as we recognize weakness in our faith, may we ask God, please help me. I believe but help my unbelief. And as we sense the weakness in each other's faith, let's exhort and encourage one another that we might hold one another up. We need each other. So friends, in the midst of our trials and suffering on this earth, may we be people of faith who cry out, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we persevere in this and not lose heart. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this word in Luke 18 that we are to continue to pray and not lose heart that we must continue to look to see that Jesus returns Lord we confess that we often can forget the fact that Jesus is coming back we can often lose hope and be merely have our eyes set on the here and now, set on the physical. And so I ask this morning that through your word, you would help us to see with new eyes this morning, fresh eyes of faith that say, yes, Jesus did rise from the dead. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God and he is coming back. Oh God, may he come quickly to bring justice and vindicate us who are languishing under the pain and the suffering of this earth. Father, strengthen our faith this morning that we would wait with faith for his return. It's in his name we pray, amen.